Amen. Isn't it wonderful that we have a relationship with our great high priest, Jesus, who's passed into the heavens? And I want us to go in our Bibles, what an appropriate song for our text this morning, to the Gospel according to John in chapter 13, the Gospel of John in chapter 13. It's always an honor to stand and preach God's Word and teach God's Word, and it's an honor to be here with you today. I appreciate that so very much. And uh, how many of you will be in Senior Chapel this time next year? Raise your hand. All right, very good. How many of you will be there in two years? Okay, where are my professional students? And you don't know when you're ever going to get to Senior Chapel. Okay, uh, well, they that endure to the end shall be saved and degreed, okay? So uh, continue working hard at that. <clears throat> I was thinking as Dr. Burt was talking about uh, the needs in New England. We think of so much need in our country today. Need in Southern California and need on the, the East Coast. <clears throat> we were in the state of Florida for 15 years, and I could tell you that all the way up the Atlantic coast of Florida, there are needs of pockets of places where there are no Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches of any kind. And the task is great. And you sit here in this lower room thinking about all that needs to be accomplished in our world, in our country, to return to biblical righteousness. And the need seems great. And I want us to fix our minds in this lower room to an upper room where the need is great because this companion, this teacher, this friend has been uninterrupted in his ministry to these 12 men. How quickly life changes and how slowly we come to recognize those changes. Life for these men this following afternoon will never be the same. We come here to the Passover feast where Jesus is seated around a U-shaped table with his disciples. Their hearts are slow to understand that the next afternoon Jesus will be crucified, <laughs> suspended between heaven and earth between God and men. He becomes the mediator for our sins. Fifty days from this moment, Peter will stand in the same city after his second conversion as Jesus works in Peter's life to salvage him from the devastation that will occur in Peter's life this night. And the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. But before all of these events take place, Jesus observes the feast and he speaks intimately to these men in what we call the upper room discourse. We'll take our text from the first 17 verses of John chapter 13. The Bible says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, and the devil now having put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, 
He riseth from supper. He laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. And Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, you're not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he saith unto them, Know ye what I have done to you. Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Let's all read verse 17 together. Begin, if you know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. May we pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time that we have to study thy word today. Lord, meet us in this place. We often pray, Lord, that you would be with us, but Lord, we pray that you would make us aware of thy abiding presence. You are here today. In every row, in every section, in every heart, you are here. May we acknowledge that you are speaking to us, and may we acknowledge the power of thy word. Change us today, we pray. Meet the needs that we brought to chapel with us. We'll be careful to give you glory for all that you do, for we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Karl Marx said years ago, last words are for fools who haven't said enough. It would seem counterintuitive for us to believe such a thing is true because it's the last thing a person says is the thing that is often closest and nearest to their heart. These last words that are expressed in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are those things that are nearest to the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in this upper room, Jesus gives his church his final instructions before his death. It's been often said that well done is better than well said, and that would be true with this exception. Jesus well states and well does as he gives the disciples in this room a pattern of obedience and humility and service to others. This magnificent scene in the upper room begins with a deed of love that's so potent and so powerful that those who would love the Lord Jesus Christ would emulate his example until he comes. This, this event has been called a parable in action. 
Notice again in chapter 13 here, verse number 1. Jesus, knowing he would depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. The Greek word here is telos. He, he loves them to the end of his purpose for being with them. They have become so dependent on Jesus for his instruction and for their learning, for the sustenance of their lives. I mean, let's face it, they've left businesses and families and houses and, and possessions to follow Jesus Christ. And he's wanted to bring them to a place of absolute surrender upon him. And in this last moment together, before they leave this room singing a hymn, Jesus goes immediately from this place into the Garden of Gethsemane where Judas has arranged, knowing Jesus will be in his prayer closet where Jesus is arrested and the next day crucified. This parable in action is so important and so breathtaking in its power as Jesus, first of all, he teaches to the end. I find it remarkable if you look back in, in chapter number 12 that in chapter 12 there was another potent scene where Jesus is in the room of friends in the house of Mary and Martha and these two disciples that have been so faithful to Jesus, and not only that, but, but John says that Lazarus is also at the table. He's the guy that was dead in chapter 11, but he's not dead anymore because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And, and it says, if no one in the house is truly grateful and understanding the moment in which they're living, except Mary comes into the house and she has a pound of spikenard, very precious, and she breaks that box and pours it upon the feet body of Jesus and, and dries his feet with her hair in this awesome scene where Jesus is being anointed by a woman that, that sees the significance of what's happening in, in Jesus' life. But it's in this moment in chapter 13, it is not Jesus being anointed, but it is Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Jesus on his knees washing them and giving them an example. Notice verse 15 of chapter 13. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. But it's not only that Jesus teaches to the end. I want you to notice that Jesus is fighting to the end. It says in verse number 2 of this passage, Supper being ended, and the devil now having put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. It's hard for us to grasp the awesome love of God. We use words like so because it's so beyond our comprehension just how much God loves sinners. But it's this Judas that we've learned to hate. It's this man that Jesus loves to the end. And he gives this example in chapter 13 of how we not only treat our friends, but we treat our enemies. He fights to the end for Judas. But not only does he fight to the end for Judas, notice in this passage he fights to the end for his own. Hey guys, as, I, as I'm in this passage, I'm, I'm thinking about this idea that the one thing these disciples need, I mean, they're called the twelve. I mean, whatever happens, we, we've got to stay together. These guys have been doing life together and, and trying to stay unified, but in this upper room, things are about to become severely splintered. I mean, it's Judas. It says in the passage, he has the bag. Judas is going to leave this room after he dips the sop with Jesus and goes out to betray Christ. And, and the disciples are shocked at the dis, disunifying 
idea that Judas has left the room. And then in this passage, it's not just Judas that's going to betray Christ. It is Peter is prophesied that is going to deny Jesus three times. And the disciples depend on, G, uh, on Peter to say something. Even on the Mount of Transfiguration, we read when Peter didn't know what to say. Didn't keep him from not saying something. He just chooses to say the wrong thing. And these disciples are discombobulated. They're bewildered. They're frustrated in this moment of disunity. What's going to happen? Jesus says he's going to die. And, and our treasurer and our mouth person is, is now leaving our group and what's going to happen. And I just want you to note before we get into the outline that as the disciples are going to reach this ultimate crisis of faith, they learn some things. A trusted colleague is an actor. A thunderous comrade will crumble to public pressure. And that their true and faithful companion will die ignominiously on an old rugged cross the next day. But catch this. In moments when you don't know what's going on, I want you to turn your eyes away from Peter and Judas. And I want you to get your eyes on Jesus. For notice what it says in verse 3. Can we read it together? Let's all read Verse 3 together. Ready to begin? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God. I've often said that this identity crisis that the world is facing today basically hinges on the answers to three questions, right? What is my origin? Where did I come from? The question of purpose, why am I here? The question of destiny, where am I going? Now just notice in verse number three, Jesus has the answers to all these questions. First of all, we notice of his origin. He knew that he was from God. Of purpose, it says in verse three, all things were given into his hands. Of destiny, he knows that he's going to God. Watch guys, when you don't know what's going on in your life and you question who you are, seek not to find your security in who you are. Seek to find your security in Jesus, knowing who he is and finding our identity in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Ephesians chapter one, verse six says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in Christ. Maybe you're trying to find yourself today. You will never find it. Or if you do find it, you'll find a cheap imitation. You will only find yourself as you find yourself in the person of Jesus Christ because he tells us where we came from. He tells us why we're here. And because of Jesus, we know where we're going when we die someday. Can all God's people say amen? amen. So there's security, not in the moment, but there's security in the person of Jesus Christ. So in this moment, he says to his disciples, do as I do and do as I say. And I want you to notice three pictures of Jesus' love that we see flowing from verse number four. We write down Jesus' love to save. Jesus' love to save. Now there's an obscure story that happens here that we have to unlock the meaning and power of it before we get to the Happy are ye if you do them at, at the end of this section. Notice again in verse 4, Jesus riseth from supper and he lays aside his garments and he took a towel and girded himself and after that he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Now watch, watch the progression here. Jesus is sitting at a U-shaped table. He's sitting on the far right of the table with John 
sitting beside him later on in this passage. John is the one who's writing this passage. He says, I was the one that was leaning on Jesus' bosom. On the other side of the table sits Peter. And beside John, we think Judas is sitting in that place. Jesus rises from that couch, that table. He rises from supper. John said he rose from supper and he laid aside his garment. He takes his outward robe off. And in place of his outer robe, he takes a towel. Not just any regular towel. This is the towel that says, I am the least of all in the room. I am the servant. I'm not the king. I'm not in charge. I'm in a sense, I'm the one who's in the seat of the servant. He rises from supper. He lays aside his garment. He takes a towel and he girds himself. Notice carefully, the Bible says he, he pours water into a basin and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now what really happens here, if you're really paying attention, is Jesus is giving one of the greatest object lessons in the history of awesome object lessons. I mean, this is the greatest of all object lessons. Jesus is showing these disciples what he has done and what he will do for them on the cross the next afternoon. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation and he took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul begins to describe in great detail what took place in this upper room. Jesus rose from supper as he had done Not too long before when Jesus rose from his throne in heaven. He rose from that place where he had eternal fellowship with his father. If you're with me, say amen. Amen. Jesus rose from that throne where he and the father had communion for all of eternity. He rises from the throne and he lays aside the outer display of his glory. He lays it aside and he takes on him the form of a servant. John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And guys, when Jesus rose from supper, laid aside the outer display of His glory, took upon Him the form of a servant, He came in the likeness of men. He came down to this sin-cursed world, this world that He had made, this world that was created for His glory. He came into this world through a virgin's womb in Bethlehem. He took upon Him the form of a servant, and on Calvary He poured Himself out for you and for me. So Brother Cox, what does he pour out? I like what Isaac Watts said. He emptied himself of all but love. No wonder John says to Nicodemus, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Would you like a good verse for the coming offering on Sunday? That though he were rich, yet he became poor, that through his poverty we might be made rich. He became poor. He left those ivory palaces, lays aside his glory, girds himself as a servant, pours water into a basin, and he washes us. And guys, he washes us from our sin in his own precious 
blood. So Peter and James and John and these disciples are seeing Jesus' love to save them, wash them from their sin. I heard a story a couple years ago about a husband and wife, and the wife had a tumor in her face. And the doctor had warned the, the husband that this tumor had so wrapped itself in the side of her face that in extracting the, t- the tumor, which was necessary, that, that it was possible that certain nerve endings would, would have to be cut in the side of her face and that there would be some type of deformation when uh, she healed from this really invasive surgery. So the husband prepared himself for this moment when he goes into the recovery room and he, he sees the disfigured face of that woman that he so greatly loved. And the doctor wrote of this event because it was really amazing what the husband does when his wife comes out of the anesthesia. The husband sees the new form of the wife's face. The doctor watches as the husband curls his lips. In exact fashion, his wife's face has now been disfigured, and with his disfigured face, he himself kisses his wife on the lips. And the doctor said he saw in that moment an awesome picture of love. Guys, he took upon him the form of a servant because we were disfigured, but as he kissed us with his own precious blood and love, he conforms us to the image in which we were originally created to reflect. Can we just sit in it for a moment as we think about the awesome love of Jesus Christ for you and for me? We see Jesus love to save. But I want us to continue in the passage because Jesus is clearly not done teaching the disciples this lesson because, number two, we notice Jesus loved to sanctify. Look, if you will, in verse number six. And cometh Jesus to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Verse eight. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never... Now shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no, notice carefully, thou hast no part with me. And so Peter gets this idea, I certainly want to part with Jesus. And so he exclaims in verse number nine, Well, while you're washing my feet, just wash me from head to toe. And Jesus breaks through Peter's ignorance and says in verse number 10, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. Verse 11, for he knew who should betray him. Now, there's two words for wash in this passage, and I I want you to mark them for me if you don't mind. Notice the word in verse 5, to wash. Verse 6, Lord, dost thou wash. Verse 8, thou shalt never wash. Jesus answering, verse 8, answering him, if I wash. Notice the second wash in verse 10. Needeth not save to wash his feet. Again, we see it in verse 12 and twice in verse number 14. We have the word wash, and it's the the same Greek word. It's the Greek word nipto, and it means to to cleanse. Has the idea of washing a, a part of the body, the hands or the feet. 
And, and so we think about that picture Jesus is giving in verse number five. He began to wash what their feet. Now, this is not a full body bath. This is not the thing that we should all do every day. Can I get an amen? Some of you said that a bit loud. I'm wondering what's going on in the dorms here at West Coast Baptist College. To niptoe, to wash, to wash the feet. I mean, there's dirt in the streets. There's, there's all kinds of things in the street. It'd be natural for a, a man to come home and have his feet washed. Maybe a servant or maybe his wife. Maybe someone who wants to do a service. In this case, it's Jesus that becomes the ultimate servant and he washes the feet of the disciples, niptoe, to, to cleanse one part of the body. And Peter gets this idea that Jesus is going to be on his hands and knees at Peter's feet and Peter gets really self-righteous and he says, you're not touching my feet. And Jesus says, no, I have to touch your feet because if I don't wash your feet, if I don't niptoe your feet, you have no part with me. But there's another type of washing that the first century Jew goes through, and it's, it's, the, it's the word in verse number 10. Jesus saith to him, he that is washed. Now this is a different word, and it's the word luo. And it means to bathe. It means to wash from head to toe. It, it means to wash, just leave her 2,000, all your 2,000 body parts. That the Romans have built bathhouses, maybe you're living in the city of Jerusalem or maybe up in the Galilee, and you go by the Roman bathhouse, you take your shower, you take your full bath, you scrub your hair, you wash your face, your feet, your arms. And Jesus is saying that there's a, a full body bath that's necessary for all, and 11 of you in this room have had that bath, but it's necessary for service that Jesus Cleans your feet. So, so let me just say it again. There's two types of people in this room in John 13. There are those who have been bathed and need only to daily place their feet in the hands of Jesus. And then there are those who have never been washed from their sins. Now I ask you a question. It's a sobering question, but I want you to sit with it for a moment which of the two are you? I remember one of the most amazing things I ever have seen God do. It's that the college my wife and I attended and met, there was a freshman orientation the first weekend. I think it was on Labor Day, actually. And we're at a campground, and it's past 10 o'clock at night. And I'm not saying the haze in the mountains had anything to do with it, but there was a fog, and I, I believe it was a... There was a fog of God that entered into that tabernacle. By the end of the night, it went well past one or two in the morning. There were over a hundred college students, Bible college students, who got bathed in the blood of Jesus. I'll never forget that night when God came in. I ask you again the question, have you ever been washed from all your sin in His precious blood? And this is what Jesus says, and the disciples are aghast at this, at this idea that there would be one among them that's never been washed from their sins. He says, notice verse 11, ye are not all clean. So why do the disciples need their feet cleaned? I want you to hold your place here. I want you to go to the Old Testament book of Exodus and chapter 30. 
the book of Exodus in chapter 30. As God gives the pattern of the tabernacle to Moses. What a great picture of Christ, by the way. The tabernacle. An earthly picture of that which is true in heaven. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. What a picture of Jesus. And so the high priest would come into the court of the tabernacle, and the first place he would come to is a brazen altar, a place of sacrifices. And then he came to the brazen altar, or the brazen laver. The laver was made out of mirrors, so the Bible uses the term looking glasses. Mirrors. What does a mirror do? It tells you what you look like. So the laver is made out of mirrors. It tells you what you look like, but it's filled with water. And you can also see your reflection in the water, but the difference is that the water can take the blemish away. And so God tells the priest, I want you to, after you visit the altar, I want you to go to the laver. Why? Because God wants his priest to be clean priests. What does he say? Notice Exodus chapter 30 and verse 18. The Bible says, And thou shalt make a laver of brass, and his foot also of brass, to wash withal. Thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar. Thou shalt put water therein, for Aaron and his sons shall wash. What does it say, guys? Wash their hands and their... God wants his people to have clean feet. God have those who, who have those beautiful feet that are that are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. God, he wants his servants to, to have clean feet because we've been bathed in that fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Can I just ask you, how many of you have been washed in the blood that, that washes whiter than snow? Man, we live in this sin-cursed world with the excrement of fleshly desires and all of the things this world has to offer in the dust of the world. And it's necessary as, as believer priest in our great high priest Jesus that daily we put our feet in the hands of Jesus to sanctify us that we might serve him and be clean vessels, sanctified meat for the master's use. What does John say if we, if we confess our sins? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but, but he that confesseth and forsaketh shall have mercy. I see, first of all, Jesus loved to save. I secondly see Jesus loved to sanctify us, to prepare us for, for Christian service. But I want you to notice, number three, we see Jesus' love to serve. Now, the object lesson and the washing of the feet of the disciples is to remind them, I'm the only God that saves. I'm the only God that sanctifies. And I've given you a pattern of service. And by serving you, I want you to go and serve others. Uh, by the way, I want you to notice verse 12. Can you get your eyes on verse 12 in our chapter? Let's, fi let's finish the figure of Jesus' object lesson. Look at verse 12. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said to them, I love this part. 
He rose from supper, he laid aside his garment, he took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin, he began to wash the disciples' feet. He rose from heaven, laid aside that outer display of his glory, he took on humanity, he comes into this world, he pours himself out, he washes us from our sin. But verse 12 says, when he was done with this redemptive act, he picks up his robe and he puts it on again, and he sits down. Hebrews 1, God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And let me tell you guys why he sat down. He sat down because his redemptive work is complete. So he sits down and after his work is complete, he says to them in verse 12, do you know what I just did to you? And it's at this moment that he sets upon them the change, the charge to serve others. He takes his feet, he takes his hands, he takes his heart to heaven. He takes his eyes, who filled with tears, to heaven. He takes his mouth that spoke wonderful words of life to heaven. He took knees upon which children flocked to, to heaven. He took arms that embraced sinners to heaven. But he left his body here. We are his feet. We are his hands. We are ears that hear the cries of the needy. We are eyes that see the needs of the world. We are hands that minister to the needy. We are feet that run to those who need Christ. As I think about this charge to serve, I'm reminded of this fact. Maybe you can note it in your heart. You, by coercion, can force someone to submit, but you can never make them happily serve others. You can forcefully make someone submit, but you can never make someone happily serve others. Only Christ in you can ever do that. You know what we hope for you at our college? We don't just hope that you learn some things by way of submitting part of your autonomy in your time here. It's that you will volitionally and voluntarily decide the rest of my life, I want to be a servant the way Jesus serves his church. And he charges them to serve others. William Carey, the great father of modern missions, was once at a dinner party. A distinguished guest hoped to humiliate him and said to Carey with a loud voice for all to hear, I suppose, Mr. Carey, that you once worked as a shoemaker. 
To which Carrie humbly replied, No, your lordship, not, not as a shoemaker. Just a cobbler. Not, not as one who made shoes, but he that mended them. Just a servant. What do we learn from this passage? We are to wash our sins in his blood. We are to place our feet in his hands. We are to gird ourselves as servants and by love we're to serve one another. So by the end of this exercise, the room feels so disjointed. What's the first verse of chapter 14? We, all, we quote it. We know it. Can we all say it together? Let not your... And I want to stop there and say everything they feel right now is trouble. Let not your heart be troubled. Our treasurer has revealed himself as the one who will betray you. Our mouth person is he that will be, deny you three times. Troubled? You're going to die tomorrow. Unity? Collaboration? Yes, even here. Now think about it for a moment. Let's do a little more Bible study and then I'll be done. Chapter 13 begins with a disjointing situation, right? How does this discourse end? Chapter 17, will you look at it? By the way, we learn the most amazing truths about Jesus and his, his heaven and the Comforter. There's so many classic passages right here in the upper room. And when you get to chapter 17, in theology, we call this the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Now, he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, but in the upper room in chapter 17, this is a front row seat to the, to the Father being spoken to by Jesus the Son. And he lets you in on what's on his heart. And what is on the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ? Look in chapter 17 very quickly. Verse 3, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Verse 9, I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all are mine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Verse 21, that they all may be one. What's he praying for? Unity. That they may be as one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in them, I in thee, and they also may be one in us. Now just watch here. Chapter 13 begins with what? An event of great disunity, confusion discombobulation, bewilderment. And it ends with the prayer of Jesus to unify the church in the Father and in the Son. Sometimes a church finds itself dismembered from one from the other. Sometimes disunity comes to a family 
Maybe some of you could give testimony to the breaking apart of a family, the breaking apart of a church, the breaking apart of the unity of a student body. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a what? To any people. And maybe you're in the room this morning and you've got all your eyes on Peter. You've got your eyes on Judas. And I call you back to the one who's disrobed and girded with the servant's towel, who in wonder of wonders ask you at your feet this morning to put your hands in his feet. I'm calling you this morning if you're ever going to be a successful servant. And success and servant seems to be an oxymoron, doesn't it? But if you're ever going to be a faithful servant, you, you, you have to learn to not find who you are in yourself, in your church, in the applause and praise of men, in your deacon board or the students in your, in your classroom. You have to learn every day to put your feet in the hands of Jesus and find who you are, not in Peter, not in Judas. Find yourself in him. Because guess what? Judas walks out, but from chapter 13 all the way to the end of chapter 17, who never leaves the room? His name is Jesus. And if you love Jesus, you'll love ministry. And if you love Jesus, you'll love preaching. Why? Because he hath promised, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee.